Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is Sarah Hoskins. She is a documentary editorial photographer currently residing in Lexington, Kentucky. She has worked for national and international publications and has been recognized for her sensitivity to those she photographs. She is known for her long-term projects, including The Home Place, where she has spent over 20 years photographing historic African-American communities in Kentucky's central bluegrass region. Her work has been recognized and seen in a variety of publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, uh, Newsweek Magazine, and many, many other publications, including National Geographic. Along the way, Sarah has been gifted and rewarded many times over, and she continues her work today. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Before we get into the story of um, the home place and the work that you've been doing for the past 20 years, just tell me a little bit about your, the history of your, your photography career and how you, if you stumbled into it or whether or not it was an intentional goal from the very beginning uh, to take it up as a profession. Well, my dreams of going into the Olympics died when Christy Hyde beat me constantly in track. Um, and then when I was in high school, um, I started taking a photography class. And I was a kid who would, you know, if I had a, a gap between classes, I would go in the dark room and develop and print pictures. I was always that kid with the camera. It actually started on my eighth grade field trip to Washington, D.C. with a 110 Instamatic camera. And I spent all my money on film. Um, so I think I always knew um, in high school, and you know, I ended up going to college, um, majoring in photography, and I, I guess I was just lucky because I knew what I wanted to do, and that was it. So uh, just from, from childhood, really, the eighth grade, you really uh, were taking pictures. You had a lot of practice. You were, you were really into your career at an early, early age. Yeah, and it's it's funny because I was a kid also who used to climb in the attic, you know, and go through, um, we had photo postcards and like, you know, the family Bible with tintype pictures. And it was really amazing to me because I picked up this photo postcard and it had a thumbprint on it, you know, because if you make a mistake in the darkroom, you could leave a thumbprint. And my grandmother's name was Nellie Emma Jean, and she hated it because she sounded like a horse. But on the back of the postcard, it said, Dear Nellie, went to Norwich, New York, which was the big town um, they were from, upstate New York, could not get your Kodak supplies. And through that, I learned that my grandma Nellie used to actually make her own prints, which is kind of amazing because she was, you know, an older woman. <laughs> So she had done that. She was kind of ahead of her game. So maybe it was genetics or, or something. What did uh, your university college experience uh, teach you about uh, photography? And 
And what were you um, taking pictures of at that time? Um, well, originally I was accepted to the Art Institute of San Francisco, and it was too expensive to go, so kind of at the last minute I ended up at Columbia College in Chicago because it was more affordable. Um, and it's kind of funny because when I was in school, it was junior seminar class, and it was really, really, it was really hard. Critiques were really hard. And I was actually a documentary photographer at that point, which which was not in trend, really, in that class. And I was photographing fishermen on the lakefront. And I remember just being trashed in the critiques. And, you know, then I was much more successful doing, you know, still lives and then went on to commercial work. Um, and when I graduated, um, I didn't have any illusions of being an art star. Um, these days, I think you have a lot of contests and exhibits are like 30 under 30. That was not the case when I graduated from college. I went to work. I mean, I wanted to be a working photographer, and my first job was at a catalog house on South Wabash Avenue, and there were 26 male photographers, 13 male assistants, and me. And people really don't realize what a male-dominated field photography is or was. I think it still is in some cases. So my, my glamorous jobs were as an assistant, and I would hang weed whackers from fishing lines to photograph for catalogs for like Sears and Montgomery Wards. I'm sure I'm dating myself. Uh, Armor-alling tires, another glamorous assistant job. And, you know, it wasn't exactly uh, wonderful. Um, on the side, were you still uh, looking for those iconic uh, photographs that you knew might have captured uh, the attention or at least pleased you, uh, whether they were uh, a, a nature shot or maybe those fishermen you were talking about? Or, or were, was it all work at that time? You, you had work to do and, a, and bills to pay. You know what? I, w I worked. I really kind of put my personal work to the side, and I quit that job after... Um, a guy was promoted above me, and I had been there longer, and I thought I was a lot better. And then I worked as a freelance photo assistant because I was could make better money. And at that time, you know, you worked as an assistant until you learned. And I worked for every photographer in the city, and I made really, really good money assisting. I was I can say I was a good assistant. Um, I never complained. I've got some bad discs from carrying, you know, 70-pound cases up a mm. three-and-a-half-floor walk-up. But I worked with really, really good photographers, and I learned a lot. So what did an, an assistant to a photographer do I I at that time? Uh, any, er, anything and everything but take the photo. There was a couple people I worked for who will remain nameless. And I did literally everything except for push the button and get the photo credit. Um, so you did, I mean, you did a lot. Lighting. 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 You know, it was a different animal. You know, you were, you were carrying, you know, tons of lighting equipment and strobe, strobe equipment um, and, and doing things like that. Uh, I, was, I was quoted in a publication by a, a dear friend who has since passed away named Peter Howe, who was a former photo editor of Life magazine and then wrote, wrote, did a publication called The Digital Journalist. And I was quoted as saying I was driven to make less and less money because I started out in advertising and then I went to editorial work for magazines and then I went to documentary and then fine art and 
you know, when I teach, I did a lot of programs um, in Chicago for kids who, um, you know, from marginalized communities who they didn't have the art programs in the high, in high schools. And I remember saying, yeah, I wanted to be a fashion photographer. And my students just looked at me and burst into tears because of laughter because it couldn't be further away from where I am now. So the the progression uh, that you you were working then, when when do you remember we moved from film to digital and and what sort of transition was that for you as a as a young photographer? I came very late to digital. Um, I still do the home place project in Kentucky. That's the only project I do still in film because it's so expensive. But I started that in film in 2000, and I want to complete it in film. But financially, it's it film is really hard. I mean, it's expensive. When I say hard, it's just a lot of money. The transition to get back to your question, I was very late in buying a digital camera because I was really broke. And I was with an agency called Black Star in New York, who was my editorial agency. And, and my editor just said, look it. And <laughs> in a very yelling, sort of loving way, said, yeah. you got to buy a digital camera or I'm going to kill you and I can't get you any work. So I, I bought my first digital camera in 2006, and I was late to the game. And... Um... So you did that uh, sort of kicking and screaming away from from film, but you but you retained your film cameras and the ability to to shoot thirty five millimeter film. Is that what? Yep. And, and that's what the home place is. And we're going to talk a lot about the home place in just a, a, a moment. Um, I, I hesitate to even ask if you take a a photo with an iPhone uh, and and w- what that transition must have been like for you. Um, I I try not to. I'm pretty I'm pretty pathetic at taking iPhone photos. In fact, really? my 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 daughter laughs at me and she's like, "Oh my gosh, mom, you're touching buttons again. Stop touching buttons." You know, and I'm like, "You realize that I am a photographer and I have to touch a button to take a picture." I'm pathetic with an iPhone. I'm you know I, I I'm going to just say that out loud, being recorded. I am really sad. Um. And of course, we don't know what the next uh, step is or the next stage is from from iPhone uh, digital to to no matter what. And I, I don't even want to go into the uh, AI space and the uh, chat uh, GBT space in this conversation. That's not proper. But we all know somewhere along the line, it's going to uh, affect all of our lives in some way, including this podcast. It'll be done by artificial uh, intelligence in some way. So let, let's go back. Uh, let's let's stick with film then. So uh, even at the time when you were forced to go into digital photographer photography, you were you were still kind of hanging on to uh, to black. And, and and is am I correct? The home place has all been done in black and white. Yep, black yeah. and white film. And, 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 and what in your mind is the difference in the way your photographer's eye sees black and white versus color? I don't think I think of it consciously in general. I don't think of... I see things in light and shadow and composition, and I think you can get really hung up on color, too. It's like, oh, my God, look at that purple house. But 
Is the image interesting just because it's a purple house? Maybe. Um, I think black and white is harder. Um, it's not like I really set out to do it that way. And, and maybe it's because the images that I admire most of anything is in, in when I, you know, do teaching programs. I love the work of Lewis Hine, um, who changed the child labor laws, and it was all black and white. The work of the Farm Security Administration in the 30s. And, you know, I mean, those are images that just stay with me. But, you know, one thing when we think of film and we think of, you know, prints, gelatin silver prints, which is what my prints are, we know that they're going to last for a certain amount of time. And if you think, you know, you're talking about AI, if we think about digital, and I'm sure there are people who are just, you know, rolling their eyes at what I'm saying, um, what about floppy disks? Mm. What about VHS? Mm -hmm. What about CDs? What about all those things that we have saved our photos on? Are we transferring it over? Are we backing it up? Are we getting lazy? And I have one selection of work that's in the Smithsonian Institution, and they wanted prints. We, we know that they're going to last a certain amount of time. And I'm not saying digital isn't going to last, and I'm not saying mm -hmm. that black and white prints are right for everybody. I mean, really, I, st I started this project mm -hmm. in film and gelatin silver paper, and believe me, it'd be a lot cheaper if I did it in digital mm. at this point. But it's it's one thing that I'm really want to be consistent mm -hmm. with, and I'm I'm organized with it, with my notes and my proof sheets, and it, it's the only thing that I have in my safety deposit boxes, which I need to get bigger ones, um, is my film. That's it. There's no stocks. There's no deeds. There's no gems and jewels. <laughs> it's it's my film. Well, before we go to the home place and talk about uh, that project, uh, which which is your, I, I would assume uh, you can save this comment uh, when we get to that point of uh, your life's work. But we'll 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 let you label it. Uh, I want to ask you another question because I heard a. And you would know the photographer, and I do not uh, remember his name. I don't know photographers that well. A very famous, still living photographer, who was um, who photographed uh, all the wars. Uh, was in Vietnam uh, as just a young um, photographer. is is well into his seventies now. Just just opened a show uh, in I think New York. Um, has been to Ukraine, uh, Syria, um, but uh, the the interviewer. Uh, ask him what he looked for uh, in his subjects. What 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 was the main thing that he looked for? And he said hands. And he was able to look for their hands, and then the way he framed everything else, sort of the way uh, a person, uh, uh, a, a soldier, uh, a citizen, uh, a child uh, had placed their hands uh, and. So the question to you, do you have a particular part of the uh, the anatomy or of the background or do you go through that or are you are you so good that you <laughs> see it and recognize it and know it's good and you snap it? 
Well, of course, I'm going to want to say the second one. Um, but I think, I think that you know when you make the image. I, I, really, I really do believe that. And there are certain images that, that I know when I was making them that I, I knew that I was seeing a good image. You know, there are very specific images that I, I, I know. Um, it's nothing like talking about photography <laughs> on, the, on the radio or a podcast. Yeah, um, it's a little difficult, but we can, there, we can use our best descriptions. There, there, was, there, were, there were certain ones that I can say right off the top of my head. One was of Monty Elms, Noah's name in the Cheyenne Rodeo, because he had this great face, and he, you know, they would wrap... Uh, a string of leather around their gloves to tighten them if they were a, a saddle bronc or bronc rider. And he had just these wonderful wrinkles and he was pulling this, you know, this knot. And that image, Otis Rankin, who is from the Home Place Project, who was sitting in the vestibule of a church and he was a very, very, very regal man. And he was 92 at the time. And I, I've talked with the pastor and people at that church since then. And it was probably one of the first images I made on that project and it was in 2001 nobody's ever sat there again oh really nobody's ever sat there again uh -huh. and then the hog killing pictures which I know it's a very strange thing to be known for but that's what I'm known for hmm. there were very two specific images there one was when a hog was about to be shot and then the hog in the tub of steaming lye and there are just certain yeah. those yeah, you know, uh, you know those are good. Yeah, I mean, I would love to say that, you know, I see that every time and every image is yeah. perfect, but if I said that, I would be lying. <laughs> it's, it's... Yeah. I'm talking to Sarah Hoskins, who is a uh, photographer of some renown. Uh, she's been doing this all of her life, uh, from um, rodeos uh, to uh, many other adventures and and now she has settled into a project that she's been working on for over 20 years called The Home Place. It is in, uh, uh, well, we'll get her to tell us about it uh, uh, on the other side of this wonderful uh, spot that we're going to hear from our underwriter, uh, the people who make this podcast possible. And those are our great friends at Spalding University. At Spalding University's low residency MFA program, Creative writing students come to campus for an exciting week of learning each semester, followed by independent study from home that fits in with work and family life. Write prolifically, explore across genres, gain editorial experience on a literary journal, and become part of a lifelong writing community. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Sarah, you've done uh, uh, this project for uh, longer than some of these young people that you probably have in your classes uh, have been alive. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it really is. Is it, is it your, your life's work? I mean, I, I told folks a minute ago that are listening that we would I would ask you that is it is it something that has become your life I I think so you know um, my family will be like well don't say that because then it sounds like you know you're you're not going to live long or you're not going to do anything else um, it's 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 part of my life I mean I I've moved here um, the residents 
of the communities are, you know, and, and I'll try to get through that without crying because it's not going to be pretty, um, are my friends and my family. They're, they're, they're part of my life. Um, I thought when I began this project in the fall of 2000, it would be six weeks or six months. Um, and it's been over 20 years. I mean, there were a couple times where I'm like, you know, okay, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm going to be done and I'm going to wrap it up. And in 2007, a very dear friend, um, Ernest Talbert, Uncle Ernest, as I call him, passed away in October and I didn't think I could keep going. Um, and then I found a new community. Well, how did it begin? I worked for a magazine called The Backstretch, uh, which was at the behind the scenes horse racing. And I learned about the communities and I thought this would be a kind of great project. And I, a woman had written the article and, you know, I said, hey, do you want to work on this with me? And, you know, people don't want to work with you when you're not making any money. Um, and so I got introduced to a woman named Lydia Talbert in New Zion, Kentucky, and she said, you should go down and see Sarah Relford. And then she said, well, you need to, I think I said the name wrong, it's Relford, uh, talk to Winston Figgs. And I went and I saw Winston Figgs, and then I met Derek Talbert, and he said, you need to go meet my dad, who's going to kill hogs on this day. So every person led me to somebody else and that's when it really just kept going um you know I have a I have a stack it's you know still printed out on paper because I had a computer issue and I thought I once lost all my names but every name is in order of how I met people and I mean that's just how it goes and one person led me to another who led me to another where is New Zion it's uh, on 922, is it 920, Newtown Pike? In Fayette County. Oh, now you're going to test me. I don't think so. I think it but, might be but, right but over. Nearby, right yeah, over yeah. the county line. Yeah. Okay. Um, when, when someone said you ought to go to New Zion, what did, you, what did they tell you you would find, and what did, what did you find? What did you expect to find? Boy, I don't, I don't know. I just... I met Miss Lydia. She was 94 years old at the time, and she was just amazing and beautiful, and I took her picture. And then Winston Figs, who passed during COVID at 90, I think on his birthday or right after, mm-hmm. um, and this is going to be hard for me to get through people, um, he's like, well, come back. I'm going to be planting tobacco mm. on Monday. So, you know, I was supposed to be heading back, and I stayed and photographed him planting tobacco, you know, and that to me was really interesting, and it was cool, and, you know, he was he was the last, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, so much of it's gone. I don't know what I expected to find. I certainly didn't think I would be photographing hog killing, and but historically, that's so important. It wasn't, you know, gory or... or, or it, blood and guts or you you could have made it be i'm sure but it was about tradition and culture and ernest fed everybody he fed everybody he was known for forever for his hams and all of this is coming out of new zion that those that two area? are that, those, those two? two are 
Um, but you know, everybody is. I, I, you know, now I'm losing all my words. If I, you know, um, it's it's about community. I mean, did that lead you to another community? Yeah, yeah. New Zion led me to Maddox Town, and one thing leads to another, to another. Um, and in some places, I w- was told they were gone. I mean, I was told there was nothing left at Uninger Town. Sisters Benevolent, you know, they w- were a club that that was founded over a hundred years ago. And they were descendants of the original members uh, who met every Thursday. I mean, that, I mean, I'm using my hands a lot. Um, that to me is wonderful. The communities are historically important. This isn't just a Kentucky story. This isn't just an African-American story. It's an American history story about communities that were founded by freed slaves after slavery. I mean, the horse farms were losing their labor pool. So a lot of the land was given or sold to them cheaply so they could keep their labor. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, these are incredibly important mm-hmm. communities. There's none, at least in my mind, um, like them. I mean, they're older communities. There's certainly old black communities throughout the country, but I don't know that there's any or as many that were founded in this manner, in this way. Are there, you, you've mentioned a, a 90-year-old, a 94-year-old. Uh, are they, are those communities, when the, uh, that generation is, is passing on, are there younger African-Americans, children, grandchildren, now living in, their, in that space, or are the towns abandoned? No, the towns are still there. I mean, not all of them are living there. Um, you know, some some are going on like a lot of small towns to the city. Some some communities are doing fine, and their you know their descendants are living there in the same home. Others are not faring so well. I mean, you know, there are communities that are gone, and I've seen some of them go by, I think, unsavory means, and you know. I was not living here at the time. You know, there was a sign up about zoning, and I know there were some people who were pushed out. Um, I I know that they would have stayed, and I, you mm-hmm. know, those are tapes that I've recorded, and I don't want to pretend that I know all or understand everything, but I do know what's been told to me, and I have seen places just go very quickly. Um, and some are doing good and others aren't. Some are gone since I've since I've started. And that's really hard. There was a Rosenwald school that was torn down literally literally yeah. in the middle of the night. Tell us about the Rosenwald schools and, and, and what they were and, and how many they were and was that originally a part of the project of the home place? Um, I will admit this right now. I had no idea what a Rosenwald school mm was when I started and I'm embarrassed to say that and I think most of the country doesn't know what Rosenwald schools are. Um, Julius Rosenwald who did not really want his name associated with the schools. Um, They were schools during segregation um, and how they you know and and I don't want to get things wrong so I'm just gonna can I say a blanket disclaimer on that but they were, he didn't want to just give them 
to a community or build them. So the community had to raise part of the money. And a lot of times you'll see Rosenwald schools in connection with a church or behind a church because the church would help with the funding of the schools. Um, so Rosenwald schools were in a lot of these communities. There's one that's been rehabbed in Cadentown that sat empty for a long time. There was one in Uttinger Town that was torn down. I have a photograph of it. I, don't, I didn't know what it was at the time. I'm going to give a credit to my husband because he goes, you need to photograph that building right now and pulled over and kind of kicked me out of the car mm -hmm. and it was gone the next time mm. I came. Mm. Um, but most of them yeah. had, Zion Hill had a Rosenwald school, most of them did have the schools. And, and, and you mentioned that one is still in existence. There, there are still several around the South. He was a, a wealthy New York, uh, uh, was he not? Chicago. Chicago, Chicago. business. I will say, <laughs> Sears, business person Sears, and, Sears right. Roebuck and Company, he founded, I believe, um, so he was very well-to-do mm -hmm. and... Um, Could afford to build the, the, the schools he didn't, primarily for African-Americans. Yeah, yeah. But he wanted, he wanted um, the communities to have ownership of them as mm -hmm. well. Um, he didn't really want his name on them from what I read and my understanding mm -hmm. of him. Um, but they, they, you, can still, you can still find them. You can still find them. A lot of times they're not marked. There's there's certain things that you, there's a color of paint, you know. And I actually did a story for Preservation Magazine um, on the schools, and I met the, a group of sisters, the Howard sisters, and almost every one of them were teachers within those schools. Mm -hmm. And one of the photographs that ran in the magazine was Miss Princess Spencer, who was in her 90s at the time, who had gone to the school in Catontown, and her sister had taught there. Mm -hmm. And it, it really is one of my favorite images because, yeah. and it was nice to see her. You've mentioned uh, tapes and some recordings. Uh, so along with the photographs, you did some oral histories with the people, and are still doing those, with the people that you've um, you've uh, gotten to be friends with in, in these rural uh, African-American communities? Yeah, it's, you know, it's not my story. It's not my story. I didn't grow up in the communities. I don't have the experiences. It's not my story. Um, I'm just lucky to have been allowed to photograph the people and places within the communities, and they've shared their stories with me. Um, and it's that's that's important. Also, um, a lot of the seniors I asked to write like their favorite memories sometimes. And my daughter could always recognize if a card, you know, a Christmas card or a letter had come with a story um, because the handwriting was always so beautiful mm -hmm. from the seniors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Always in longhand. Oh, and yeah. beautiful, beautiful penmanship. <laughs> yeah, beautiful yes. penmanship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Which I'm glad I have those. Yeah, that's, a, that's something good to point out. So, Sarah Hoskins, what is to become of this story? What, what do you want to do with it? Do, do, even if it doesn't have a, an end, even if there's no the end, uh, because there's so much other work to be done, 
do you see a, a, a concluding chapter that where you are uh, transcribing and, and using the photographs? Uh, you haven't done a publication. I mean, it's been they've been published, but you haven't done a, a book or you haven't done um, something that, that people can um, can hold and look at. Oh, you know, I desperately want to do a book. I think everybody wants to have a beautiful book, you know, with beautiful prints. Um, you know, you have a lot of people who self-publish books. I don't have, you know, $60,000 sitting around to publish a book, and I certainly don't want to publish a self-publish a book and have it all, you know, have 30,000 copies in my closet somewhere. It's got to be done right. I do want to do a book. I want the stories of the residents to go in it. I mean, I, I visually I know how I would like to have it laid out, um, but it also has to be done right. You know, the name, the home place, was kind of voted on by the residents. You know, what should the title of the project be? And the name comes from the Howard family home place because they would go home every Sunday to the home place and meet for dinner. And it was a name that everybody agreed on and wanted to. You know, I thought, it would be nicely tied up in a ribbon at 2000, you know? And like, okay, I'm gonna end it at 2000. I'm just gonna put a stamp, sorry about that, a stamp on it and close it up in 2000. And just, you know, COVID happened and it didn't really work that way. Um, it's hard for me to edit stuff because so many people have passed recently that it's hard for me to mm -hmm. get through those images. But I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's probably ready to be done, you know? I mean, I've lost a lot of mm -hmm. people. I mean, I'm friends now with the children, you mm. know, and the mm -hmm. children's children of those folks mm -hmm. I have photographed. Mm -hmm. The loss is hard. Yeah, I've been going to more home, home goings and, um, than homecomings, mm. I think. Mm -hmm. Are you still... I would imagine, as a as a photographer, you're always your your camera's always with you. Although you didn't bring it up here, I, oh, I, I didn't, I didn't. You know what? And I car, almost though. did. I, <laughs> but but you I, always have it with you. I always tell my students you have to have your camera with you because you're never going to know. So do you then, still, uh, do, do you, uh, other than the home place, uh, you're still taking photographs when you see something that catches your eye? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I don't know if I'll find that 22-year project again. Um, maybe. Maybe. Well, good luck to you, and I'm sure you will. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.